Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and today on the show, we were joined by Clint Edgington of the Nest Opportunity Fund. Opportunity funds are a type of investment fund that allows people to invest money in communities that are economically distressed, with the hope being that those investments do some good for the communities and the people living in them. Clint gives us a great rundown on the opportunity funds and how the Nest Opportunity Fund came to be. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode and we hope you learn a lot. But before we get to that, we want to take a quick moment to recognize a few sponsors here on the show. And our first sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio, one of our sponsors, Social Ventures. They offer resources, programs, and accelerators in social enterprise, and they act as a primary network for social enterprise activity in central Ohio. You can learn more at socialventurescbus.com. That's socialventurescbus.com. And our next sponsor is FMX. FMX is a computerized maintenance management system that helps organizations accelerate their operational success. And FMX enables you to streamline processes, increase asset productivity, and turn actionable insights into meaningful results. If you'd like to learn more, check them out at their website, gofmx.com. That's G-O-F-M-X.com. And our last sponsor is the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. And today on the show, we have Clint Edgington joining us. And Clint is a co-founder of Nest Opportunity Fund and Beacon Hill Investment Advisory. Nest Opportunity Fund is a positive impact investment fund that allows you to reduce capital gains taxes while helping to rebuild American communities with great potential that need strategic long-term investments. And Beacon Hill is an independent investment advisor serving Central Ohio clients with financial and business planning needs. We're really excited to have Clint on the show today to talk about the goals of the Nest Opportunity Fund and how it came to be. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Clint. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here as well. And, you know, one of the first places we typically just want to get a little background on yourself, where you came from, how you got to where you are today. So any highlights along the way that stand out to you from even growing up to college and beyond? Did you grow up here in Columbus? Yeah, I grew up out in Plain City. My family was always kind of a, a family of um, tinkerers and, and hustlers and always have um, been involved in like small scale real estate among some other things, but, uh, and I hope to kind of instill that in my kids as well. So I grew up out in Plain City and then uh, graduated and 
went to Miami of Ohio where I met my my current business partner, Mark Fissel, who's the brains of the operation. We were roommates there. Moved to Chicago for about, you know, eight, nine years, worked for a uh, securities litigation firm and uh, knew I didn't want to do that forever. Getting cross-examined every week is not my idea of a great time. So in 08, just right before the teeth of the Great Recession, we uh, went ahead and started Beacon Hill, the RIA. So not maybe the best time to go out. And as I think my father said, who's going to want to give money to a 30-year-old to run when, when all the banks are going under? So um, we did it. We persevered. And now here we are. And your degree was in what? Economics. So talk about that 08 situation then. I mean, that's, uh, that's a pretty interesting story. You talk about a lot of people that lost their jobs and created a company because of that, but not many around financial services. So what was that like for you guys? Yeah, I wish I could say uh, I saw some sort of opportunity and, and pounced on it, but the opposite's true. I, uh, I was under contract at the last firm and my contract was, was uh, I could get out of it once per year uh, and then they could keep me for another year. And so I, I put my notice in at the end of uh, 07. And, uh, you know, in September of 08, they said, okay, you can go. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I, I knew I always wanted to do it. I, we basically defended brokerage firms and, and investment advisors. And I liked the business model of the investment advisor. It's usually kind of fee-based instead of commission-oriented. So I liked that we were kind of sitting on the same side of the table as, as our clients. Um, so my wife and I picked up roots and moved to Columbus and started the RAA. And in hindsight, the timing was tough. But, uh, you know, at a time like this, when we're dealing with COVID and kind of our, our shutdown of the economy, I think it does give us a little bit of um, maybe calmness that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, hopefully, it's not false hope that we have, but we've been through tough times. So we'll get through it again. And maybe to you know, answer that question, how did you get people to give you money when you're 30, we're in the middle of one of the biggest recessions of all time, I guess in those early years, I mean, that's one of the, the key starting points and you're, you're kind of getting thrust into a very challenging environment for any business to, to function, no less a, you know, initial business. So what were some of those things you were doing early on and how did that, how did that all play out? I, I guess the way we uh, brought on clients was slowly. <laughs> our, our niche um, now is business owners. And um, I'm from a family of business owners. So it was my business partner, Mark, and he was running his father's company at the time. So we could kind of speak that language, kind of the way to get to business owners' hearts on the finance side is a little more with tax and the planning side of things. So we would be able to do that. You know, if we were talking to someone in the C-suite um, or, you know, someone who inherited money, we probably would have had a harder time. But um, even that said, it was very slow. I mean, I, I think it was maybe 2011 that we broke even, maybe 2013 that, uh, you know, we really started kind of contributing to our household's income. So it was, it was slow, it was trying time. But I think, like I said, now when we hear, see and feel bumps in the road, this is part of the game. So talk about what is opportunity zone investing? Yeah. So um, basically kind of coming out of the great recession, we've had fewer businesses that have formed since prior to the great recession. And what we've seen is um, I think in 2016, there were 60% fewer business filings than there were in 07. And in particular, when you look at distressed areas, you can see that's even exemplified further. So that was a way, I think in about 2015, a group called the Economic Innovation Group started to bring this up. It was a bipartisan, bicameral piece of uh, legislation that kind of got pushed through. 
and it became codified with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that passed in 2017. And basically what it says is that if you've got a capital gain, you can invest it in a qualified opportunity zone fund, and then you don't have to pay taxes on that capital gain until 2027. And when you do pay that cap gains tax, it's gonna be reduced 10%. And then what you invest in in that qualified opportunity zone fund is tax-free if you hold it for 10 years. Now those funds can only invest in businesses or real estate that's in what they call a qualified opportunity zone. And those zones are just census tracts that are in the bottom 20% of the state's income. And the governors basically got to select which census tracts those were. So in Columbus, ones that you would notice that would be obvious would be like Franklinton, you know, Old Town East, but also ones that the governors are doing from an economic development standpoint, like down by Rickenbacker is one because they want to really boost the logistics side of central Ohio. So 10% reduced from the point of where taxes were when you invested or from the point when you're, you're pulling it out at that stage? Let's say you, um, if the gain was a million, you would have a, a capital gains tax of 288,000. And then that, um, you could instead choose to invest that million dollars in a qualified opportunity zone fund. And then you don't have to pay that initial capital gains tax until 2027. And it's also reduced by 10%. So instead of paying 288,000, you would pay, I don't know the math, 250th. But if, if tax brackets changed, you would be locked in at, at what it was when you put the investment in, is that right? If the capital gains tax brackets change, which they do less frequently than, than regular income taxes, but they are slated to change in 2026, you would have that capital gains hit in 2026 to be paid in 2027, and it would be at the rate that's then in practice. Well, we're getting into tax laws now, and you know, I think- Hey, yeah. Right, yeah, Josh, we're digging- I'm curious, I, I still have another one more question though, too, oh, if we don't mind going in the weeds a little bit. What is the typical, and if this question's gonna come later, you don't have to answer right now, what is the typical return that people are seeing from investing in the fund? So the thing about the Qualified Opportunity Zone funds is that it can invest in really any business, every business, but the vast majority of businesses or real estate that's occurring within those zones. So I, I was at a presentation once, and I think it was um, someone from NCT Ventures. There were a bunch of real estate guys in the room that maybe they're having a 6% or, or a 12% annualized rate of return. And after this QOZ benefit, it maybe moves up to 9 or 15%. And um, NCT Ventures guy said, well, that's that's cute. you know." But on the venture side, if we have a 30%, annualized return, it moves it up to like you know, 50% after that benefit. So really anything, it's kind of a wrapper, any sort of investment or business can be in it. It just depends on what business or real estate you have in it for the returns. And then you get the benefits based on the QOZ wrapper, which is the tax side. So you can invest in almost any sort of private business that's located in one of these zones. And then you kind of get that tax alpha overlay. And outside of that, I mean, really, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, any sort of fund, right? The goal is to return, to achieve capital gains and return money to the investors. But at the same time, there's kind of this added benefit of helping and investing in an opportunity zone that is currently less well-off than areas around it. So it has the added benefit of providing more of a community initiative. Is that, am I reading that right? Or is there, is in terms of layman's terms, like if you had to describe it, like you ever heard explain it like I'm five? Yeah. There's like a whole subreddit for that. But if you had to explain it to someone like they were five, is that kind of capture how you would do that? A absolutely. Or? Yeah. So generally people who have larger cap gains are probably going to be living in more affluent areas. So it's going to be kind of a movement of capital and skills, you know, from an affluent area to um, less affluent areas. 
So, and that's kind of what we're seeing. You know, it starts, the real estate is kind of the easier play. There's some rules to make sure that we're not just buying vacant land and holding it for 10 years and hoping that it works out. We have to substantially improve those properties. And so you're seeing economic activity occurring because of that. Um, and so for our fund, you know, we're hiring local people and we're putting that money into those properties that are located in those distressed areas. Um, but that's exactly it, right. Hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. So talk a little bit about the Nest Fund, because earlier we talked about the founding of your firm and, and that sort of thing. But when did the Nest Fund come into play and how did that get off the ground and just the early days of that entire operation? Yeah. Just kind of like Beacon Hill, I would say slowly. <laughs> it was a bit of a confluence of events. You know, I had my first real capital gain. We, we sold an interest in a local HVAC company um, towards the end of 2017. Um, so popping out, there was that regulation that was kind of coming in at the end of 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And also we had a, an, a real estate operator that we had worked with for a long time in Lexington, Kentucky. And he, uh, he had kind of the same thing. He had a capital gain and he had sold his business and he was kind of a, a hammer looking for a nail. And so me and my parents basically said, listen, let's, let's do a little opportunity zone fund together. They don't need to be huge and institutionalized. They can just be one person creating it for themselves, one building perhaps. So we bought some properties up. At the time, the, like the legislation was murky about multi-investment, uh, multi-asset and multi-investors coming into one fund. Um, so we just did it amongst the three of us. And then, uh, Towards the middle of last year, that legislation became, you know, clarified a little bit. And then we um, we just said, hey, let's open it up to some of our investors who had been inquiring about it as well. So then we started on institutionalizing it and dealing with attorneys. And that took, you know, six months to get audit, legal, all that stuff through. So really our fund opened in December. So we're still kind of in what I would consider the opening stages of it. Yeah. And so within those, the, the opening stages of the fund, so what are some of the things that you guys have started to do and, and as you're picking up activity, right? Uh, other than pulling together the funds that you just talked about, you know, what, what did the initial process look like? Were you looking at particular opportunity zones throughout Columbus? Do you, were you looking broader than that? Can you talk us just through that thought process? Yeah. Initially we were just looking in Lexington, Kentucky. Like I said, we had done lending for real estate development down there. Um, small stuff, single families, some smaller multifamily uh, in particular for this operator. I mean, as you know, real estate, you can have a good deal and a bad operator and the operator will win. You can have a bad deal and a good operator and you, you might come out okay. So we stuck with someone that we kind of know, liked and trust. And then once we, um, once we started opening up for Columbus, we start, we've started looking for operators here and we, we've got a good one here as well. We're in the affordable housing space. So we're really not looking for larger affordable housing projects. Um, me, I live here in Grandview. I like walkable communities. We really want to maintain kind of the, the character of the neighborhood um, or maybe even the character of the neighborhood before the freeways came in and, and things got diced up. So we try to take vacant or kind of uninhabitable properties and we'll rehab them back to their former glory. 
And you mentioned the focus can be outside of real estate. So if you were just to focus, if you were to put them back into some type of startup company, as long as they have a footprint in that area, well, what terminology did you use earlier to describe the... So for businesses, there are some um, regulations just to make sure that people aren't you know, putting one foot in an op zone and then trying to get those, those tax benefits. So they have to have significant operations that actually are in the Opportunity Zone Fund. And there's quite a few regulations with how we measure that, whether it can be how many hours they have employees working from the different, the different locations. But yeah, you could absolutely do a, a small startup there. I almost don't understand why any incubator right now would not start in an opportunity zone. That's not our space. We're focused on the real estate side. It's quite a bit different processes from like a compliance and the testing procedures for it. But um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll start to see a lot more op zones funds that focus on the business side here in the next couple of years. Speaking of that focus, right? You know, you talked a little bit about it, but focus on single family, multifamily homes. Was that more of a choice from, hey, this is what we're more experienced with? Or was there other particular drivings behind that? It's what we're more experienced with. And then also, you know, when I think about affordable housing that comes in 300 unit properties, I feel like in 20 years from now, that's what we're bulldozing and calling projects and putting up new affordable housing. So for us, it's important on kind of the community side. Let's create homes that people want to live in. And we've actually worked quite a bit with the city of Lexington and creating some programs that let people who are renters end up becoming homeowners and the issue with that is the down payment is kind of the big hurdle. So we have some programs in the city of Lexington. They've given us some grant money. And in effect, if they rent and are a good renter from us over some years, we reduce their purchase price of the house and it counts as their down payment. And we're partnering with a few local banks as well to help with that. So effectively, in my mind, you know, someone who works at Walmart for 15 bucks an hour, it's going to be really hard for them to someday save up for a house. But in this case, if they pay their rent on time and, and are good renters, they will be able to, to buy a house with some equity already embedded in. And then maybe in a few years, if they want to start a little business, then they have some home equity and that, that path to the middle class that you know I was fortunate to have. So what are some of the other goals that you and the team have laid out you know, for the next uh, five to 10 years, whatever the foreseeable future is for you guys? Yeah. So it's you know like any small business, there's quite a few. But um, you know, right now we're raising capital in order to kind of get more of those homes up and operating. We're working hard right now. Our Lexington operations are pretty set, our processes, our procedures, what our finished product ends up looking like. In Columbus, you know, we really started that in, in January this year. So we've, we've just dipped our toe in here and we're looking to build that out. So that's going to be our focus for 2020. We'll be fundraising until probably 2026, unless the legislation changes some. So we'll be working on kind of that building out Columbus, um, getting good rehab procedures and, and policies in place so we can scale up some. Okay, and then after 2026, you know, you mentioned scaling up a little bit. What does that look like? So you mentioned that the strategy might change long-term. Like, how does your strategy shift over time with this type of a fund? And, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, right now, the the opportunity zones in general have had some negative headlines. You kind of have a mix of potential gentrification, and then there's also some census tracts that are just real questionable, census tract close to Aspen, Colorado. Um, so there's like negative headline risk for it. But I think probably what we'll see in three to four years is that people will start to see the development and kind of the ecosystems growing more naturally and there won't be that headline risk anymore. So my guess would be the legislation will probably extend out the ability to invest in an Opportunity Zone fund beyond 2026 and we'll just keep doing it. How have current uh, situations or like COVID-19, how have they affected the fund and the strategy and the team? 
You know, I, I hate to to just say because I know there's people out there that are really hurting. I mean, even Beacon Hill, our business owning clients, there's a lot that are kind of struggling right now. But frankly, it's not really impacting us much. So our operations are mostly all construction and which is considered an essential service right now. So it is slowing down permitting inspections, um, those things. It's also slowing down our process to get a house from, you know, completely bombed out vacant to up and having a renter in it. We have to stagger different contractors that are coming in. So mechanicals are taking a little bit longer, but all in, it's, it's really not that bad. I mean, our biggest issue right now is we had one project manager who took two crews off of, of some of our jobs in order to go plant a prepper garden in upstate Kentucky. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate right now with that. It's, Wait, like, like a doomsday prepper garden? Yeah. Like, like yep. he was like, yeah, the world's going to end. We're going to go plant a garden. Yep. That's what we're doing? Yep. Took a whole crew. <laughs> yep. And I'm talking to my the guy that runs the Lexington side, and he's like, well, there's this one thing. That's it? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you got to be <laughs> How long ago did that happen? That was um Like March. right when this all started? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. like, if that happened recently, like, that would be, it would be a little odd if it happened recently. Was it within an opportunity zone, though? Because that's fair game. Yeah, good question. I, I didn't ask about that. You could invest in the, you know, just to hedge your bets with a uh, doomsday prepper garden. We'll have to put that in the private placement memorandum, you know. Right. Mostly real estate, but maybe some prepper gardens. One prepper garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, and then, honestly, there. um, there's actually some positives for us, not through, you know, skill, but more through fortuitous timing. We're sitting on, you know, dry powder. And so we we have as much kind of dry powder right now as we have real estate assets in place or, or being worked on. So this is probably not a bad time to be a buyer. In addition, keeping your contractors busy and on time and part of your team when you have subcontractors can be difficult for that portion of our business that subcontractors, our calls are getting answered faster and they're really starting to see the value of a long-term partner who does what they say they're going to do. So net, net, we've, we've not only not been impacted negatively too much. A few of our houses coming online are getting rented slower, but you know when we're spending a couple hundred grand on construction per month, a few $900 a month properties is not really impacting us that negatively. What about advice for our listeners out there? So most of them are young professionals, 24 to 36 years old, aspiring entrepreneurs is a good amount of them. We have some business owners as well. Any advice for the people listening? Yeah, maybe uh, be careful who you take advice from. <laughs> you know, anytime I've I've started something, you know, you, you do want to ask your your mentors for advice and their thoughts but then you have to try to parse out what, what advice is good advice. And there's always a million reasons not to do something. But if you think about what's the downside if I do it, what does failure really mean to my life? A lot of times when I ask myself that question, I'll roll the dice a few more times. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Clint, I think it's a good place to, to pivot towards our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? You know, I've got a few ex-military buddies that are saying that if it ain't raining, it ain't training. You know, I just think that the the, the storms that our ships have been in make this, the smooth seas a little bit easier as well. So, you know, for us, that it happened when we started the business with the Great Recession. Obviously, all of your listeners right now are dealing with the coronavirus and how are they handling it. Um and they'll, they'll all come out successful. It might be taking some lumps. Um, for us, you know, just it would be much easier and more efficient for us 
to raise money and just put it in, you know, a giant hundred unit affordable housing project. But that doesn't really do what we're trying to do with maintaining the communities and and really using this pretty awesome piece of legislation to benefit kind of both the investors, the communities, and the actual people who are living in our homes. So in my mind, that's kind of how it how it relates to this fund. Absolutely. Well, Clint, thanks so much for taking some time to tell your story and talk about Nest Opportunity Fund here on the show. Anything, any last words for the people of Columbus? No, I really appreciate you guys uh, offering to have me on the show. Thanks so much. And Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. We will talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.